In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. As we look ahead to the week that is coming up, we're entering into a three-week disruption of the normal cycle of readings according to the lectionary. We would typically only have two, but this year we also get to observe the Feast of St. James the Just, uh, the martyr, bishop of Jerusalem, and brother of Jesus. I think of all of the saints' days, he gets the longest title of everybody. And as a result of that, because we are observing his feast day this week, we will have three weeks of not being in the typical readings because the following week is Reformation, and then the week after that is All Saints Day. And then after All Saints Day, we come right back into the lectionary to start observing the end of the church here in preparation for Advent and Christmas. And so this time of year always marks a shift in how the readings start to unfold. This year, it's amplified all the more by having that um, that three-week observation of feast days and the celebrations of the way that God has provided for and cared for his church throughout time. And as I was reflecting on the three-week arc of that, I thought, you know, it's kind of a neat way that it's all uh, li lays out this year because we get St. James, uh, the just, the bishop of Jerusalem and brother of Jesus. He is one of the earliest church leaders to be kind of elected into a position of authority. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that after, later. So we get somebody from the very beginning, and then the following week we get Martin Luther and the uh, Reformation and the opportunity to give thanks that God preserves his pure teaching in that church. And then we conclude with All Saints Days with the reading of the saints who've passed in the last year, those men and women who have been a part of our lives continuing to preserve and proclaim that message of who Christ is to the current generation. And so we get this almost advancement of the gospel through time over the next three weeks just in how the readings lay out. And I thought that was a, a neat thing to be able to see uh, happen kind of in the background of this. Probably not intentional, but always nice when those things work out. Right, and, and this, um, <clears throat> this Feast of James... The last time we celebrated it was 2011, so it's been quite a while. Well, and the challenge with feast days is, first of all, they are tied to a date in the calendar year, and so we only observe them when they fall on a Sunday. So you get them maybe every seven years, and my guess is the reason we missed the last opportunity to celebrate St. James is it was... It probably, fell on, it probably fell on Reformation. Or a leap year. Right, because it would be... October 23rd, and could you get, you couldn't get Reformation that Well, early. typically we don't move it that far. Right? right, but there must have been something else happening that we just weren't able to do that. Perhaps it was 2017, and we moved our Reformation Festival a little bit earlier because we had that joint Reformation service at the Widener Center. Who knows? Anyway, it's been 11 years since we've observed it here. Um, so it was 2011, you said? Yes. So it had been my first year here was the first time we... And you were not the preacher that Sunday. So this is a brand new set of readings for It you. is a brand new set of readings for me. When I sat down to work on it, I have not worked with this text before. 
How refreshing. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and as a result, I learned some things. I saw some things that I've never seen it before. Um, just as a side note, you may have noticed that uh, Paul is a little bit quieter. That's because his uh, voice is not fully recovered. It's uh, suffering this morning. And so I will be doing most of the talking. And so you get my melodious sounds over his. Um, and we will not be doing the hymn portion of the devotion because there's no way he could talk for 20 minutes. So, Well, there's, there's that, and, and I cannot sing right now. <laughs> so, so anyway, we will, it will be a little bit shorter. Don't think that you're missing the last half when that time comes, uh, but it is been, has been modified to accommodate his needs today. So St. James, uh, I, you've already heard me talk about him being the Bishop of Jerusalem. One of the neat things about that is he's not what we would have considered the top contender for the job because this James is not one of the 12 disciples. Well, first of all, there's, um, in my reading, I learned that there are, there are four James mentioned in the New Testament. Right. There's the apostle, and then there's the brother of Jesus, which is this James right. that we're observing this Sunday. Two others who I think had very minor roles. Right. Um, but it's, it's confusing because it's just like all the Johns and all the Marys that we have right. in the New Testament. This is a name that is very common at the time of Jesus. But this James, um, like I said, would not have been a top contender for the job if you were on the outside looking in because he's not one of the 12 disciples. You would have assumed it would have gone to Peter or maybe James, the brother of John, uh, the, one of the three on the inner circle, or even one of the other 11 that... Um, disciples that could have been mentioned because it by all appearances this james the brother of jesus is not an early follower of jesus he is mentioned in the, the gospels as being one who tries to silence jesus because they his family thinks that he's crazy he doesn't really come out to be a believer until after the resurrection and so it's interesting that he steps into that position. And we know from the book of Acts that it's not just an honorary position, it's a position with actual authority because when Peter and Paul have to argue about whether or not the Gentiles should be circumcised and whether or not you can eat meat and all of those things, and they have the Jerusalem council, James is the one who makes the final decision. He sits in judgment and makes the pronouncement of what the council has decided. And so it's just really interesting that he steps into this position, but he's also the only person that is uh, acknowledged in Acts as having a personal visit of the post-resurrection Jesus. Because uh, Paul will say, as Jesus appeared to first to the uh, disciples, then to James, and then to the rest of the followers. And so Jesus appears to James on his own, and he's the only one to get this recognition. And he has enough influence and prestige that Josephus, the early Jewish historian, James is the only early Christian that he records the death of. He doesn't talk about the death of Peter, the death of Paul. He doesn't talk about any of the other disciples, but he does talk about the death of James in, I think it's 62... Uh, A.D., when he is killed because of some political maneuvering by Annas, the high priest at the time. Do we know anything else about his background? Was he, was he maybe a, um, some kind of a civic? Did he have a, some kind of a civic role before he um, 
was appointed bishop. Not that was mentioned in the things that I had prepared, but we do know a surprising amount about him. A lot of non-biblical historians talk about him. Hmm. Uh, and that was something that was observed in what I had uh, read in the preparation for today was that modern historians look at that and argue that he had to have been of somebody of great influence and importance because the non-Christian historians mention him. They don't always mention the other disciples, but James, the brother of Jesus, the bishop of Jerusalem, James the just, he is mentioned. Um, by the way, the way, reason he's called James the just is because he is um, recorded to be very concerned with God forgiving the sins of people, so much so that he had this reputation of during services would just fall to his knees and cry out in prayer that the Lord would forgive and have mercy on those who've sinned against him. And it is reported that he spent so much time on his knees in prayers that people described his knees as looking like the knees of a camel, that they had become so calloused and hard from being on the ground that uh, he had camel knees. So there's an image for you to, to carry around. <laughs> um, so James, as being in this position, it should not be a surprise to us that he does have a letter that is written and recorded for us in the New Testament then. And this letter of James is probably written in the early 40s, as best as we can tell. Uh, so not that would make it one of the earlier documents in the New Testament. But it is believed to be cited by other um, non-New Testament works as well. Uh, First and Second Clement, which is a writing from about 90 AD, seems to reference him along with a uh, text by, I think it's Hegrippus, uh, which quotes James as well. And so his work is early quoted by the early fathers. Well, and this is, this is I think, perhaps one of the reasons that Luther struggled a little bit with what is, how should we look at the book of James? Because mm -hmm. these early church fathers certainly held it up as, as right. worthy. But there's, there's parts of it that Luther struggled with a little bit. Right, because James is working at a pretty high level of rhetoric and um, has some beautiful passages. But given Luther's focus on justification by faith alone, he acknowledges that if you don't take the time to read James carefully, and understand what James is trying to do, he can become a stumbling block then for the Christian by making it appear as if works are necessary for salvation as opposed to being the result of salvation. But James never says that they're necessary for salvation. He always says that they are the result of it and they are the proof that salvation is there. And we will see that in his language already in these opening verses. So why don't we take a moment and read verse one, please. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So we've already talked about who James is, but he is the only one who writes to the 12 tribes of the, of the dispersion or the diaspora. What's interesting about this is the 12 tribes of the diaspora don't exist anymore. Um, they are destroyed as being unique groups of individuals, uh, 
in 722 BC when they're taken by the Assyrians into exile. And then Judea is also destroyed in the same way in 587 BC. And so recognizing the individual 12 tribes hasn't happened in uh, 700 years. And yet he's talking about this. And so he's using this interesting metaphor of saying that Christ has restored his people and that the church is this new 12 tribes of Israel in the diaspora. They make up the church and they are gathered around Christ. It's just an older expression to reflect the inclusion of everyone. Right. Kind of like the expression of, you know, the four corners of the world. Well, if you're going to have corners of the world, that implies that the world is not round. It's, it's flat right. or something. And so we move beyond that, but we still right. use that expression. Right. And so from there, we move into verses 2 through 4. Could you read those, please? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, here you go. Have your sore throat as a, uh, count it as joy, as a testing in your ability to speak. <laughs> so that's not what James is talking about. But he's talking about the various trials are the many trials of various kinds. And Christians were certainly facing this. We know that by the time that James would have written this, there's already been some martyrdom. Uh, Christians are losing their position in, so, in the social order. They've lost some of their wealth, their, their income, their money. Some of them have had to move. These things are starting to happen as part of the persecution. And James is reminding them, find joy in this. Not because you are enjoying it, but because you can see God providing in spite of it. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. When he says this, James joins with the other New Testament authors in uh, talking about suffering and how suffering links us to Christ and ultimately shows us the truthfulness of our confession. Because if you are if you are Willing to suffer for something, it means that it is value, it means that it is truth. Nobody suffers for the sake of protecting a lie. That would be a foolish thing to do. And so the suffering of the Christian proves their faithfulness, not just to, well, not to God, because he knows their faithfulness, but it proves to themselves and it becomes a form of self-encouragement, but also to others around them. Because if you are willing to suffer, it proclaims to the world what I believe is important enough to give up what I have in order to hold it. And the faith is made complete then. Um, he says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What makes it complete is that it remains present until death and it bears fruit in this world. And so now he's starting to introduce the idea of the faithful Christian producing good works, but also reminding us that faith is proven steadfast when it lasts with you all the way to your death. And when that happens, you are lacking in nothing because God is there in the valley of the shadow of death to lead you to the other side, but also to remind you that even in your suffering, when you are caring for your neighbor, 
you find that you lack nothing because you are able to care for your neighbor in the way that God has provided for you. And maybe one of the reasons Luther struggled with this is because of the, of the suffering, when he, when he starts talking about suffering, because Luther thought that was so essential, and I, and I think he realized that his focus was on the wrong thing. Right. Well, and yes, so Luther talks about this in terms of um, how suffering should drive us back into Scripture. And so this is, sometimes we call this the theology of the cross, that we don't need to explain why suffering is there. We just need to recognize that suffering is there, but it is not God's final promise for you. That the suffering is temporary. And when you are faithful through it, what awaits on the other side, and sometimes the other side is the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, is far better than we ever could have imagined. But that doesn't diminish the suffering we have in this world. We shouldn't celebrate the suffering, but we also don't need to flee from it. So could you read verses 5 through 8, please? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. James shifts a little bit here because he's now starting to talk about those who are lacking. But it's not the earthly things that they're laughing, lacking, it's wisdom. And if you lack wisdom, from where should you seek it? Ask God. Ask God. And it's provided through his word because he gives, excuse me, he gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. And so God responds to the request of wisdom through his word. Now, just something fun here. James invents a word in this passage, and it's the word for double-minded. It's the first time in Greek literature that word has ever appeared. So it's a new word in the Greek. It's a new word in Greek. Okay. Yeah, he is the one that invents this term, uh, this idea of being double-minded. And He's comparing being wise in God's word with being double-minded. And he says somebody who's double-minded is unstable in all their ways. Why would being double-minded make you unstable in all your ways? Well, it's like trying to serve two masters, which is often, often cited too, is, is you, you don't know which way to go. Or the, or the expression being two-faced. You don't really know which is the real, the genuine you. Right, right. Yeah, and that double-minded is... You, you're never bal well balanced. You're always kind of tottering between one or the other, uncertain of what decision to make next. And so if your wisdom, if you're trying to balance the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world, you'll never be on sure footing because the two run contrary to each other. It's not that many people don't try. Oh, a lot of people try, but it does leave this sense of being unstable because you don't know where your final appeal to authority is. How do you resolve the differences between the two when they're uh, unreconcilable? Let's continue on with verse 9, and let's go 9 through the end of the, uh, end of the reading, 9 through 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Thank you. So now James is continuing with this idea of remaining steadfast, but he's talking about how it looks different for different people. He begins by saying, let the poor or the lowly brother boast in their exaltation. Well, what kind of exaltation does the lowly brother have? Because from a worldly point of view, he has nothing. But the Christian knows that the lowly brother has received the gift of being fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so the lowly person is able to, uh, and lowly person here is talking about uh, the poor, uh, the sick, those who would not be seen as um, having much standing in the world, they receive that standing through the baptismal waters that says you are a child of God and an heir of the kingdom of heaven. And so they are exalted in that way. But he immediately turns this around and contrasts it with the Christian, with the wealthy Christian. And here he's specifically talking about the rich. And he's talking to Christians, and so it's the wealthy Christian. In what should the wealthy Christian boast? His humiliation. Now, when I read through this, I found this to be absolutely fascinating. This is the part that I said, you know, because I've not done uh, the prep preparation for a sermon on this I, was a lot of fun to do. One of the things that was mentioned here is often when we hear Christ talk about the wealthy Christian, we see wealth as the stumbling block. And it's a lot of conversation about it is easier for uh, a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the rich man comes and says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the man goes away sad. And so we hear a lot of condemnation of the wealth. And in our Western Christian context, when you hear sermons on those texts, you often hear pastors trying to figure out how do you put this into the right context? Because we know that God is not saying that it is impossible for a wealthy person to be saved. So what is he saying here? How do we handle this? And James is giving us the answer to that question. He's saying that the wealthy boast in their humiliation because God gives them the law. He holds it up to them. And when the wealthy man looks around, he sees the grass die, the flowers fade, and he is reminded that he too will encounter death, that the wealth of this world will not protect him from death. And therefore, he confronts the law. And it is only after you confront the law that you can then hear the gospel. And so the wealthy man boasts in his humiliation, looking around and realizing that the things of, that he has accumulated in this world will not help him in the next. And he boasts in that humility because it's the law at work in his life, and that law will then allow him to hear the gospel, which allows him to become an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if, if perhaps James actually, because he had such standing, may have been viewed as maybe being somewhat wealthy and 
so for, from a very personal firsthand experience, he could express it in this way. Well, he, whether he had wealth or not, he certainly would have encountered the wealthy because he, as the Bishop of Jerusalem, would have been responsible for the managing of the uh, treasury of the church in Jerusalem. He would have been soliciting funds and donations to help the widows and orphans in their midst. And we know that money is something he deals with because uh, elsewhere, Paul is um, condemning the Corinthians, but raising up the Macedon I think it's the Macedonians, who have nothing but are giving more than they are in actual dollar amounts to the people in Jerusalem, to the poor in Jerusalem. So we know that the Jerusalem church struggles with fundraising because they're giving so much away to help the poor. Um, and so James certainly would have been in contact with wealthy Christians as he was trying to make sure that the church treasury had enough in it to be able to continue to operate. So whether or not James has his own personal wealth, we don't know. Um, but he's certainly encountering wealthy Christians and would be able to say with it, say alongside of them, rejoice in knowing that you've had to confront the frailty of humanity because that humiliation of realizing I am not the master of my, the captain of my ship and the master of my destiny, that allows you to then submit to God and humble yourself before him so that he can raise you up on the last day. And just as you, as you pointed out, just being having that title of being bishop, he certainly would have interacted a lot with the civic authorities who right. had the access to wealth. Right. Um, and he's, he's working in an interesting place and in an interesting time, and that does lead to his martyrdom um, because, as I said, Annas, the high priest, takes advantage of the death of one emperor and the period of time in between the death of one emperor and the um, appointing of, or the seizing of power of the next, he uses that break to be able to have James executed, um, which ultimately leads to his own demise because the next ruler that takes power doesn't like that Annas you abused his authority and has him killed as well. Mm. So, you know, be careful who you kill. <laughs> <laughs> and so in the end, where James brings this opening part of his letter to conclusion is with this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That's a reference back to that persevering. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so we see that crown of life imagery being introduced. And we see that elsewhere in the New Testament as well. But it is the reminder that what God has in store for the faithful far exceeds what we could ever imagine having in this world right now. What's, what's interesting in this passage, too, is you already hear echoes of the Beatitudes. And those, those appear throughout the book of James. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's convenient that this particular feast day happens to land, as you mentioned earlier, very close to All Saints Day, which is, which is the, the day in the year we always hear the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And, right. and, and um, it definitely has echoes of that. And he certainly would have knew, known the, the, um, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Right. Yes, he most certainly would have. Well, because we are going to forego the singing of a hymn today and the study of a hymn, let us pray. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you've caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by the patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.